and he has chosen an interesting topic, the doctrine of the great company. The doctrine of the great company. Brother David. Thank you very much, Brother Dan, and thank you, Brother Paul, for your opening prayer. You know, before I have to begin, I have to tell you how much I appreciated Brother Tom's talk this morning. And uh, as he was listening, he said something that reminded me of our discussion yesterday on comfort zones. He said at one point, Jesus left the joy and security of heaven, you remember, to come to earth to be a ransom. Isn't that an example of leaving your comfort zone? (laughs) We have the example of our master. Wonderful lesson. Recently, we were visiting some brethren in the hospital, and they're brethren that have some different doctrinal viewpoints than us. We hold the ransom for all in common, but have some different views, and we were discussing some things. And the subject of the great company came up, and I asked them what they thought about it, and expressed them, and they said, well, you know, you see it as a secondary class. It says, there's only one calling. You know, they can't be a secondary. There's only one calling. There's only one hope. You know, the great company can't be a, a secondary class that way. And so we, we had a discussion about it, but I was starting to think about it, about how we would go about showing a doctrine that we understand. And in fact, as you'll see by the end of this lesson, it's quite pervasive in Scripture. But how do you go about proving to someone, because they said, don't show me any types or, or, or pictures or shadows. Just give me a plain statement of Scripture. Well, there is a plain statement of Scripture, and you can start with that. And then as you start to round out the doctrine by looking at the types and shadows, it it really gets uh, quite interesting, quite beautiful. Before I begin, I want to ask you a question about the doctrine of the great company. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but answer this in in your own mind. Is the doctrine of the great company a fundamental doctrine? Yes or no? Think about that for a moment. Now I want to read to you reprint 4078. Brother Russell says there, column 1, paragraph 2, Some of our readers appear not to grasp fully the fact that two classes are being saved during this gospel age. A little flock to be the bride, the lamb's wife, joint heirs in the kingdom, and a great company who will constitute her companions that follow her. We might say from one standpoint that this is not a fundamental doctrine and that henceforth differences of opinion respecting it need cause little concern. However, every truth has its place and bearing upon the divine plan as a whole and upon our doctrinal establishment and hence our ability to stand in the evil day. I really like the balance that Brother Russell brings to this. Every truth does relate one to another. And it's one of the things I love about the truth so much that... As we study God's Word, and as we come to see more and more details of what God's Word has, what we find is that they agree with the old, old story. Don't you find that? I mean, it's not like we're discovering, oh, new truths that we didn't know before. No. We find new perspectives, new ways at looking at the divine plan. And brethren, it's an indicator that we have the truth. You know, if our experience was the opposite... If every time we studied, we found a challenge and we have to figure out, well, how do we fit this in? It doesn't seem to say that. Well, then we might question if we've got some, some of our foundation building not quite right. But our experience isn't that way. 
even if you look at the smallest place of Scripture, you find in there the divine plan. And it's very satisfying. And I think that you'll see that a little bit as we, as we go forth on our lesson today. To establish the great company, what statement of Scripture do we have that clearly states it that's not a type, a shadow, or a picture? I think we have one, which is where we're going to start. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, this light up here is so perfect. I don't need to put my glasses on. I can, I can see this wonderfully. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We want to read verses 12 through 14. It's a familiar text with you, but it's a nice, clear statement of something important. Paul says there, Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, I agreed with the brethren's assessment or assertion, that we have only one call. I'll say at the very beginning, there is no call to the great company. Don't imagine there is. There isn't. That's not what the Lord wants you to do, wants you to be. There is only one call. It's in a heavenly call. And when we read here what Paul says, it's pretty clear that there are various ways in which we can get a reward depending upon how diligent we are in building our Christian character and building on it Christian service. And he shows the, on three, uh, three elements on one hand are gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Now, these are very powerful elements. If I put gold in fire, what happens to the gold? It melts and it gets, gets dirtier. It gets purer. You heat it up. You're right. The dross lies to the surface. That's how a metallurgist will purify precious metals. Same way with silver. Precious stones, you put them in fire, they just get hot, but they don't change. (laughs) There's something eternal about these elements. And Paul wants us to understand that that is the important part that we have in building upon the one foundation. You know, he talks about the one foundation in that same context there. We have our foundation Christ. Now we are building on that one foundation a Christ-like character. And that Christ-like character will drive us to service. Jesus was the ultimate servant. Well, I guess I really should say Jehovah is the ultimate servant. You imagine our great God, he's serving the whole universe, always has been since he created it. Jesus follows his example, we follow Jesus' example. Those are things of eternal nature. Those are things that will purify and get better the more you heat them up. And of course, heat, we normally think of the heat of trial, and that's the idea here. But now, if we are not being careful about how we use our time and our talents... As consecrated Christians, we will find that we're not building on those things that are eternal. And and that's the wood, hay, and stubble area. If we are occupying our time uh, with worldly endeavors, worldly interests, spending our time reading worldly things or watching television or or just doing any of those activities that don't build us up as new creatures, uh, then we find ourselves not growing as we should. God gives us each a finite amount of time. When we make our a consecration, God knows how many days we have. We don't. God knows. 
But brethren, we have to remember, that's finite. I'm 62 years old. I made a consecration when I was 25. Those years are gone. I have X number of years before me to make my calling election sure. And that's true of each one of you as well. We need to make sure that we build with things. So there is a character lesson here to all of us. How are you using your time and your talents? Are you using them for spiritual things? On the other hand, if you're building edifices in this world and accomplishments in this world, those things will mean nothing in the time of trial that we will each have. And as Paul says, it will be burned up. But here's a key element. I guess anybody could say, yeah, you're either building good or building bad. But notice that one class receives a reward. He says, if any man's work abide which he had built thereon, he shall receive a reward. And there's no question about what that reward is. It's one call. We are called to the divine nature. That's the reward. No other reward is held out other than the reward of the joyful service and the delight that we have in the service of Jehovah each day. But that's the reward that's held out. But notice what he says of the other class. If any man's work shall be burned, number one, he shall suffer loss. Well, what is it is he going to lose? Is he going to lose his life? No, because it says he shall be saved. So what's left to lose? The reward. So if you lose the reward of the divine nature, what's left? Well, a reward other than the divine nature, isn't it? Do you see where we're going here? We have one hope of our calling and one reward that's offered to us. But what we're saying is that the class that receives this, and by the way, I'm not going to use the the term great company until we get to Revelation 7. The class that receives this, they lose that reward, but they still have life. That means that they get a different... I'm not going to use the word reward because we're talking about a mercy class here. A class that, through the favor of the high priest... And by the way, that's a quote from Tabernacle Shadows. Through the favor of the high priest, the great company is saved. Theoretically, they should have lost life entirely. But they're a mercy class. That's what Paul teaches here very plainly. This isn't a type. It isn't a shadow. It isn't a picture. It is a description of a secondary class, a mercy class, that still stay alive in spite of it. So if anyone challenges you on the existence of this class, here is where you can start. Now, we're going to go to types and shadows and pictures here, because the types and shadows that the Lord gives us, as Brother Russell stated earlier, every truth has its place. And there are many, many things that try to shape it out. And that's the purpose of types and shadows. Once you are able to understand a doctrine clearly, from the scriptures that are given where, where it's not ambiguous in any way. The Lord gives us this, this, this plethora of types and shadows that help in fill, fill in the color, give us a little shading here, a little more depth of understanding. One important principle to follow always, though, when you look in types and shadows, and Brother Fry used to emphasize this all the time, and, and I know you've heard it from other brethren, don't mix the pictures. Each picture is intended. It's a snapshot of a specific part of the subject. Now, if you're looking at that part of the subject and you say, well, it doesn't match with this part, well, that's a different picture. You know, it's like eyewitnesses at a traffic accident. You know, the, the, the traffic copy goes, you say, well, what did you see? What did you see? What did you see? And sometimes they, they see conflicting things. So the, the police have to puzzle it out and put together what really happened from that. We, we should avoid confusion by just looking at the elements and teachings of each separate picture. Because sometimes the pictures are, are, are quite widely uh, disparaging. 
What should we call this class? Well, I'm going to ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 44. And we're going to find that Ezekiel uses a a different term than great company here. But again, we're building up. Now, in Ezekiel 44, the context of this verse, if you remember, this is the vision of Ezekiel's temple. And next to the, de- to the detail of the tabernacle, you have Ezekiel's temple. It would be second. It's very detailed. There's a lot of elements given. But I don't want to rebuild a lot of things that you already understand. The Ezekiel's temple vision is a picture of the millennial kingdom. And in Ezekiel 43, you have uh, some uh, information about sacrifices that lead up to the establishment of that, uh, of that altar in Ezekiel's temple. So we're looking at a millennial picture here. Now, let's read, starting in verse 11. And by the way, before I read, you're going to see a couple of elements here you're familiar with. You're going to see a term called the Levites. And that's the term that Ezekiel gives to this class that fail as respects the reward. Verse 11. Yet shall... I'm sorry, I, I don't want to read here... Verse 10, And the Levites that are gone far away from me, when Israel went astray, which went astray away from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. Let's pause there. Now, is this a positive picture of this class? No. It says they went astray. Went astray after idols. There was some idol worship here. And they led Israel into stray. But what is God going to do with them? It says in verse 11, Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary. Having charge at the gates and ministering to the house, they shall slay the burnt offerings and the sacrifice of the people. They shall stand before them to minister unto them. And this is pretty interesting. You would think that a sin of idolatry and causing Israel to go into a stray uh, would be something that uh, might even cost their lives. But God's word says, Yet, in spite of this, I've got a job for them to do. Well, we see a parallel here between uh, the Apostle Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 3 of that class whose work was burned up because it wasn't acceptable to God. And the sin of this Levite's class is not acceptable to God either. But this picture says he still has something for them to do. The Levites are a picture of this class this secondary spiritual class. In the case here, Israel, they led Israel astray. We think that that has to refer to spiritual Israel because this is a millennial picture. And so looking back on the gospel age, it's this Levite class that was in some way responsible for leading Israel astray. Spiritual Israel, it's the early church, the church that became the nominal church. We can go back a little bit of history here and sort of understand what this sin is all about. Now, you know from your study of Gospel Age history that Paul said, after I leave, wolves would enter in among you. Well, if the elders in a specific church or ecclesia saw a wolf come in, how should they respond? Get out! Drive it out! Don't let it touch the flock! Be diligent! And diligent elders did just that. But, you know, after the apostles were gone, while other ideas started to come up, Maybe they weren't wolf-like. Maybe they were sort of baby wolf-like. So, oh, well, that's not so bad. 
You know, yeah, that's that's a little different than the Apostle Paul or Apostle John said, but, you know, it's innocuous. Yeah, we'll let it go. Now, that's not an attitude of holding the standard of truth tall, is it? It's accepting little changes. And if you've got a hundred little changes, what do you got? you got a big change. And in the, after the apostles left the scene at the end of the first century, the second century, the third century, again, it's all history that you're familiar with, the doctrines of truth got diluted and watered down, and the wolves did come in. Now, we're not suggesting that this class is a wolf class. I think the wolf class has a greater accountability, especially if they were spirit-begotten. Many weren't. They were just there for power and glory. But this is a class that was negligent at the gates. They didn't keep the gate of the Lord. They didn't stand guard for the standard of truth that we have. And they permitted the truth to be watered down. Now, this is a sin of omission. Why didn't they do that? Maybe they didn't study enough. Maybe they they didn't spend enough time in prayer. Maybe they didn't spend enough time in fellowship discussing these things with mature elders. Maybe they didn't follow the example of those. They said, oh, you're, you're too hard on it. They're building with wood, hay, stumble, not holding the truth as they should. So this sin of omission, this sin of not guarding the gates, results in the creation of Babylon the Great. Now think about this. This is one of the characteristics of this class. They have a little responsibility, maybe from God's standpoint, a bigger responsibility, for allowing the souring of truth. And that's just what what Ezekiel says here. It says, they went astray from me, and they caused Israel to go astray as well. It says, but I'm going to give them this job. And they have a job that's more of a mechanical job. We'll see in a few verses that it's not a priestly job. But they still have something. This is saved so as fire. Now, this picture doesn't show the personal tribulation that each has to go through. Because if you commit a sin, you have to be purged from that sin. This doesn't talk too much about it. It just says that the sin was there, but in spite of that sin, I'm going to do this. This is a case of just looking at what the picture has to bring. Let's read a little bit further because we have a, a, a repeat of this. Verse 13. Because they ministered unto them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity, therefore have I lifted up my hand against them, saith the Lord God. And they shall bear their iniquity. Let's pause there. Does that sound familiar? Bear their iniquity? You may remember in Leviticus chapter 16 on the Atonement Day ceremonies that something was confessed on the head of the scapegoat. Remember what it was? It was the iniquities of the sins of Israel. By the way, this is a nice connection that this class is represented in that scapegoat as well. Reading a little bit further, here it's very clear what they've lost. And they shall not come near unto me to do the office of priest unto me, nor come near to any of my holy things in the most holy place. But they shall bear their shame and the abominations which they have committed. Notice, they will not come near to do the office of priest. Remember, Paul said that the the group that kept their work right, they said they will have a reward. That's the reward, the priesthood. But this class doesn't have that reward. They will not come near. They will not be priests. A little bit further we read. But, in spite of all of this, I will make them keepers of the charge of the house and for all the service therein and all that shall be done therein. 
So this class still has a duty. You might say there's a little hint of retribution in here. They did not keep the gates of truth when they were in their consecrated state on this earth. They didn't watch the gates carefully, and they let things come in. So what do they do now? Well, you're in charge of the gates. You didn't do a very good job before, but I'm going to give you the job again now. So, And that's the role we understand of this class. They are helpers to uh, the priests. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the priests and Levites, but you know that within the tribe of Levi, there were the two groups. There were the priests, the family of Aaron, and there were the Levites that weren't the priestly family, but helped the priests out and did the sacrifices. That's another picture that is being borne out here, even using the same terms, priests and Levites. By the way, in verse 15, we have a description of the Levites, and I want to read that. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray, they shall come near unto me to minister unto me, and they shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat and the blood, saith the Lord God. Now, there's a lot that we could say here, but do you notice the contrast? The priest kept the charge of the sanctuary. Brethren, all of us who are consecrated, we have a responsibility to keep the purity of the truth. Now, that, we, that doesn't mean that we are, are to be disparaging or uh, uh, even high-minded about those that may have different ideas. Each of you personally is going to be judged by the Heavenly Father on how faithfully you have kept the truth that you've got. And we have to be very careful that we're diligent and faithful and loyal in doing that. Because as you can see from this uh, chapter in Ezekiel, it will be one of the measures of whether we make our calling and election sure or not. By the way, it says these priests are the sons of Zadok. Anyone remember what Zadok means? Righteousness. You see, there's that righteousness. You can kind of see that word in, remember the king priest Melchizedek? Melchi Zadok. Melchi means king of righteousness, you see. So that, that name comes up once again. <clears throat> All right, see, I'm not looking at my notes, and I'm already on page three. didn't know it. <laughs> we made a brief mention of Leviticus chapter 16, and there's a few more correspondences between the experiences of the scapegoat and this Levite class. Um, number one, notice that in Leviticus 16, you had two goats. Here you've got two classes, priests and Levites. Number two, one is a sin offering in the sanctuary, and one isn't. The priests serve in the sanctuary, the Levites don't. One experiences tribulation, and one doesn't. The scapegoat is sent into the wilderness, but the Lord's goat is sent into the sanctuary. And one is associated with disobedience and one approval. You know, the Hebrew for scapegoat is the goat for Azazel. It's generally recognized Azazel represents Satan. So it's associated with that disobedience. And so you can see that the Levites, God says, I've lifted my hand up against them. And that's associated with disobedience as well. We're not going to spend any more time uh, in Leviticus 16, but just to make the observation that the scapegoat represents the same class as the Levites. All right, now let's go to Revelation 7, where we, we, we finally see the term that we're used to using more often. Leviticus chapter 7.
In verse 5, I'm sorry, not in verse 5, <clears throat> verse 14, verse 9, <laughs> get it right. <laughs> After this I beheld in a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Of course, we find out later this is the, the great company, or as we used to say when I was a Jehovah Witness, a great crowd. And I wanted to use great crowd because that will come up in a moment. Uh, there in that verse 9, we see that there were five characteristics of this great multitude. One, no man could number them. Two, they were of all nations, kindreds, peoples, and tongues. Three, they stood before the throne. Four, they clothed in white. Five, palms in their hands. These are all identifiers. Now, when I was a Jehovah Witness, we believed that the great multitude or great company or great crowd was us, was an earthly class. And so we identified it as an earthly class. So one of the, the things that we want to look at is ask the question, uh, in this context, is it describing an earthly class or a spiritual class? Now, you already know where we stand on that, where we've seen. But we want to look at what Revelation 7 says that would help us to identify it. Some of these uh, seem to help and some uh, are neutral on it. First of all, it says no man could number them. Do you remember when the Abrahamic covenant was given? God was telling Abraham that your seed would be as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. By the way, he said dust of the earth at one point, and then later it changed to sand of the seashore, and there's a development of that which is very instructional. But in both cases, how many stars are there? Can't count them. If we believe that there's only 144,000, then we should have said there's only 144,000 stars. That's, that's the whole spiritual class. But the spiritual class is an uncountable number. So if you take 144,000 plus an uncountable number, what do you get? An uncountable number. <laughs> and so the, the existence of this secondary class is sort of implied uh, in the Abrahamic covenant when it says it's without number. Genesis thirteen sixteen Abraham's seed, dust of the earth. Genesis fifteen five Abraham's seed as the stars of the heaven. In um, Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, we can turn over there for a little bit. There's just one, one verse here, or one part of this verse that I wanted to read. <clears throat> Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 8. You know, one of the difficulties with taking specific verses is that <clears throat> they are nested in, in other great and wonderful contexts there, uh, but we don't have time to go in it too much. But... In verse 8 there, there's a description. There are three score queens and four score concubines and virgins without number. We'll just leave in passing that this is also a reference to this great multitude of this great tribulation class, and it corresponds with no man could uh, number them. The second uh, characteristic is of all kindreds, uh, nations, kindreds, people, and tongues. When Jehovah's Witnesses would expound on this verse, they say, look at us. We're from every nation, every people, every tongues. We're the great company. Well, it certainly does match that, that particular uh, uh, description, but they, they don't notice one thing. The word of is not what the word it is in the Greek. And the word in Greek there, the preposition, 
is ek. You know what ek means? Out of. That's right. Out of all peoples. And out of, it's not saying it's comprised of it. It's out of all peoples and all tongues. This is a characteristic that, that conforms much better to the idea of those being called to the name of Jesus during the gospel age. In other words, uh, a spiritual class. The third one, they stood before the throne. Well, in Psalm 11, verse 4, it says, the Lord, the Jehovah's throne is in heaven. Psalm 103, verse 19, Jehovah's throne is in heaven. Matthew 5:34, heaven is God's throne. So if they're before the throne, they must be in heaven, right? Well, if you're a witness, you got a good comeback for that. They said, well, isn't the earth called uh, uh, God's footstool? And where's the footstool? It's before the throne. All right, so looks like they have a comeback. But we got a comeback, too. Look at that once again. It says, they stood before the throne and before the Lamb. You've got to put the two together. And by the way, the word before in front of Lamb is the Greek word enopion. And you know how the Diaglot translates it? This is pretty neat. Diaglot says, before, standing before the throne in the presence of the Lamb. Slam dunk. We got that one. <laughs> it says that they're clothed in white. That's the, uh, the fourth characteristic. Uh, in Daniel 7, 9, it shows that the righteousness got a right garments. Uh, in Second Chronicles 5, 12, it, dis- it displays the Levites uh, wearing white. Remember that in, in the Revelation here, this is a picture after the uh, little flock and after the great company have had their reward. And so this is a very good thing for the great company because the right now, white now represents their own righteousness. Prior to that, they had to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and we're going to come to that in just a moment. But now when they're standing before the throne serving, they have been accounted righteousness by virtue of the resurrection to a spirit, not a divine, but a spirit in nature. It also says they had palms in their hands. And uh, when you look at palms, and because of time we won't look at it, there's a bunch of scriptures here. If you were to go into Solomon's temple and look at the carvings of wood on the wall, what would you see? You see palm trees. <laughs> uh, so we have an association here of palm trees with the, with the sanctuary, within the holy and the most holy of the temple. And uh, by the way, it, palm branches were also associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, that was another celebration in recognizing victory. Our, we're going to come back to one more verse here in, in Revelation chapter 7. But just page over to Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, if you would. Revelation 19.1. Now, King James says this, After these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Much people in heaven. If you go to the Greek, you'll find that it is exactly the same phrase as great company or great crowd. And where are they? In heaven. You can see, I I think certainly that uh, the case is for a spiritual crew here. Uh, in verses 14 through 17, it gives ten more features of, the, of this, this great company. We don't have time to look at them, but I do want to focus in on that fact that they came out of great tribulation and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So this class is a class that has come through tribulation that was necessary for purification. When you're washing your robes, you're purifying them. You put them in the Maytag and put it your, they come out cleaner. Well, this is a washing in the blood of the Lamb. It is suggesting very strongly 
that they had done something which only the blood of the Lamb could take out. You know, we talk about getting our robes spotted. And I think James says that true worship means keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. That's one of the problems with this group. They don't stay unspotted from the world. And it may explain part of the reasons why they let their guard down and let uh, the truth become uh, diluted, both at the beginning of the gospel age and during the whole age that they existed. So they have to come through tribulation. Link in your minds that back to the fire shall reveal it, the day of fire. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 3? And the fire burns away what is, what is bad. It purifies them, allowing them now to come back in to be the helpers of the, of the priests. Relates right back to Ezekiel chapter 44. Priests and Levites. We made a, a brief mention of that. And we're going to take a little detour here and, and have a little fun. How, how many tribes were there in Israel? I heard somebody say 13. That's the right answer. You say, well, Brother Stein's really lost it this time. It is the right answer. And it's part of the beautiful picture that we have here. Think about it like this. Let's go through how the tribes developed. Jacob had how many sons? Twelve. All right, so you have the twelve sons of Jacob. And yet, if you look at a roster of the twelve tribes of Israel, you see two tribes there that weren't sons of his. You remember who they were? Ephraim and Manasseh. So we got 14 names, don't we? Well, Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. And, of course, Jacob, he accepts them as his sons. So in, in a very real way, they become his sons. So you take out the tribe of Joseph, all right, so you go from 12 down to 11, and you put in Ephraim and Manasseh, that leaves you with 13. Well, what's the 13th tribe? Levi. The 12 tribes had inheritance in the land, didn't they? You can go on a map and you can say, well, here's Judah, here's Zebulun, here's Dan, here's Issachar, all 12. But you won't try, find a tribal inheritance for Levi. Isn't that interesting? Levi was the 13th tribe. And by the way, this sort of suggests very strongly to us that Satan has perverted the number 13. What do people in the world think? 13. Oh, my goodness, it's bad luck. 13 is a priestly number. It's a very good number in Scripture, as you can see from here. Where did Levi live? Well, since they didn't have a land inheritance, they had to live somewhere. And God provided 48 priestly cities in which they lived. In fact, six of those priestly cities were the cities of refuge, three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other side of the Jordan. But they didn't have a land inheritance. And as you've already seen, we see the tribe of Levi was made up of priests and Levites those that sacrifice and those that assist. But they didn't have a land inheritance. And this is another beautiful, strong suggestion that these two classes are not earthly classes. They're heavenly classes, classes that have a spiritual inheritance. And God says that of Levi. He says, Jehovah is Levi's inheritance. God is his inheritance. And so, again, we have another indicator and another one of these types that the great company is indeed not an earthly class, but a spiritual class. In Genesis chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, because I'm just going to make reference to experiences of Abraham and Lot. Abraham, Lot, and Lot, we would suggest, is another picture of the little flock in the great company. Abraham was magnanimous. He said to Lot, 
we're getting in the way of each other. Our flocks and when we have some problems here, some traffic. Um, where would you like to live? Now, remember, this is this is Abraham's land, at least by title. But he and his in his charity, he says to his nephew, you choose first. I love, I love that, I love those characteristics that we see. Well, what does Lot choose? He says, well, I'll take the land cl- close to Sodom and Gomorrah down here. Not a good choice, right? Abraham says, oh, okay, that's what you want. So Abraham goes into the other part. This choice of Lot, I think, is another suggestive of the characteristic of this class, for Lot is a picture of the great company, that they are not choosing the best things they could. Now, again, you know that Lot is described by one of the New Testament writers as a righteous man. He was a good man at heart, but not necessarily making the wisest decisions. And I think, in general, that's a good description of the great company, of the Levites. They're righteous people. They love righteousness, and they love God, but they're not so careful about it. It doesn't take them to the next level where it does for the priests. So Lot chooses there. He ends up living in the, in the city of Sodom. And was the Sodom a good city? No. It was a very bad city. And it says he was vexed there day by day. Why didn't he leave? Well, you know, we can speculate. You know, he had his daughters and his prospective sons-in-law were there. Maybe he had a business there. There seemed to be some ties that he couldn't quite cut, even though he was uncomfortable there. Well, this is a picture of another component of the great company class. You know that the word went out in 1878, come out of her, my people. Come out of who? Well, come out of Babylon. And Sodom is a picture of Babylon. Lot has been invited, but he doesn't come out. He still stays there. And you know the story. Eventually, God said, well, it's, it's time to wipe the cities out. And you remember that little preamble there where God told that to Abraham? He says, I'm going to destroy those cities down there. Abraham knows his nephew's there. And he's thinking, oh, Lot's there. Well, Lord, let, let's talk about this a little bit. Are you going to destroy the people? You know, if there's 50 good people there, you know how that went. You know, kind of down, down, all the way down to 10, right? Abraham is in mind his, his nephew. You know, God says, no, no, I'll take care of good people. Well, the good people in the city, Lot, he wasn't thinking very wisely. He didn't come out, didn't come out. What did God have to do? He sent his angels, and they say, yeah, Come on, Lot. Well, they did say that. What was Lot's reaction? I'm coming. I'm coming. Didn't come. And then the morning, what happened? They grabbed him. Grabbed him out. You know, God is going to deliver those that are still in Babylon out in that way. We can't really understand what keeps them there, but there's some kind of connection there that they, that they don't want quite to break. And eventually they come out. The cities are destroyed. They're spared from that particular destruction. But we can see that it's a tribulation experience that they have. One more item when we're talking about Lot, just to emphasize how dangerous the situation can be for the great company and can be for those that are building with wood, hay, and stubble. Jesus at one point says, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife is a picture of those that couldn't completely cut their desire, their yearning for what was in there. And their demise was destruction. Very, very careful that we do not have a yearning for things that are not in harmony with God or the truth. So that's Abraham and Lot. By the way, it's uh, 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8 where Lot is called uh, righteous. And Luke 17, 28 through 30 where Jesus is talking about uh, Lot's wife. 
Our next one, uh, again, I'll tell you that we're not going to read so much for it. It's the wise and foolish virgins in chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. The word virgin symbolizes pure. And so those represented in the parable, both the wise and the foolish, do represent holy people. And that's, that's completely harmonious with what we've been suggesting all along. The great company are not an unrighteous people. They don't rejoice in, in sin and unrighteousness. They're just not wise. They're foolish, uh, as Jesus says there. And the wise virgins represent the little flock, the foolish virgins, the great company, the oil, the Holy Spirit of understanding, the lamps, uh, their Bible vessels, their minds and hearts. Um, in this connection, there's a couple of interesting things that I came across why did Jesus use five wise and five, five foolish? Why did he use the number five? Well, he had to make them equal because he wanted to show that, aside for the, from their choices, that everything about them was, was pretty close to similar. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. 1 Samuel <clears throat> chapter 25. We want to read verse 42. And the context here... Uh, is uh, an interesting interchange that King David had with a man named uh, uh, Nabal, I believe it was. He had a wife named Abigail. He was not a nice fellow. He ends up dying of a stroke. And David admires the characteristics of Abigail so very much. Now, that's a nice little study in itself to see some characteristics of the little flock. But so taken of David, uh, is David of this uh, Abigail that he asks her to become his wife. And she consents. But in verse 42, notice here. And Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of hers that went after her. And she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Abigail in this little picture would represent the church. And those five damsels, the great company. The virgins, her companions. And you recognize where virgin, her companions come from. That's Psalm 45. We won't take the time to look at it. Psalm 45, verse 14. The virgins, her companions, that follow her, you see. Isn't God's word marvelous? You know, we're jumping around all over the place, but do you see how it's, it's the same picture? You know, maybe from the left, maybe from the right, looking up, looking down, but it's harmonious. It, it's, it's the same thing there again and again. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, it's one of the beautiful things that we have about the truth that as we start to put these pictures together, we don't have to skew and we don't have to spin and we don't have to scratch our face and and, and hair and think, how does it fit? It almost fits without even thinking about it. I'm going to take another detour completely off my... um, Three weeks ago or four weeks ago in Detroit Metro Convention, some of you were there, I gave a talk entitled Mary Had a Little Lamb. You may remember it. And it was about, it was really a biography of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, it was a wonderful study for me. What a, what a fabulous character Jesus' mother was in this earth. Wonderful woman. Uh, after the convention, uh, I was driving the car with, with Sister Kathy, and we were talking about that scene at the cross where Jesus is on the cross, and there in front of him is Mary and John. And you remember he says, woman. Your son, John, your mother. Remember, he brings them together. And Kathy says to me, she says, you think there's a picture there or something? Could, uh, could this represent that or, or this represent that? And it got me thinking about it. And the more I thought about it and started pulling things together, uh, it was a couple of days, and it just kind of opened up. 
And it was another case of seeing the divine plan in a place I hadn't seen it before. And that's what I want to share with you. That's what this detour is all about. You remember that Jesus' natural family were not believers. Remember, John says his brothers didn't believe on him. You know, they grew up with Jesus, and he was a fantastic fellow, but when he says that he's the, you know, they didn't quite accept that. And so when Jesus associates John telling him to take care of his mother, I think maybe from a practical standpoint, it's where we were originally, that it meant that the brothers, they didn't, weren't quite deserving, so he wanted his mother with someone he knew would take care of it. By the way, John was probably a distant relative, so it kept it in the family. We're going to suggest to you here that we have a picture of Israel falling into disfavor, the church being substituted, and Israel coming back. Here's how it works. His brothers didn't believe him. Natural Israel didn't believe, his, didn't believe Jesus by and large either. So what did he say? Your house is abandoned to you. Your covenant now is on suspension, and you know, we're, God is not dealing with you so much anymore. That's the result of their unbelief. And so, since God is not dealing with natural Israel, he's got to start dealing with spiritual Israel. And so, Jesus now gathers together the Gentiles and associates them under the Abrahamic covenant, grafting them in, particularly the Sarah feature. So when Jesus is up on the cross, he says to Mary, the Sarah feature of the covenant, woman, your son, John, the John class, your mother. So you have the coming together of the Gentiles under the Abrahamic covenant in that picture. But it doesn't end there. After Jesus' resurrection, he had 11 post-resurrection appearances. Brother Jonathan Quiet out in the East gave a talk, a memorial talk at New York not too many years ago, or too many months ago, and it was, a, it was very well done. But Jesus appeared to many, including those of his family. Paul tells us he appeared to James, his fleshly brother. So when Jesus did that, they became believers. And you see them with Mary in Acts chapter 1. You see Mary and Jesus' brothers they are praying before the day of Pentecost. So they became believers. How does it fit in here? After the gospel age, what happens? They will look upon him whom they've pierced. They will become believers, and now they come back into the covenant, back associated with Mary, as it were, and this time the Abrahamic covenant at all. There you have it. Isn't that neat? And it's nothing new. I'm not explaining new truths. I'm explaining the old, old story that we see now in a place that we didn't see it before. That's the way that the truth grows. It's, it's so exciting. I love it. Turn to Joshua chapter 1. And I'm going to have to hurry here a little bit. Joshua chapter 1. We mentioned earlier that the 12 tribes of Israel had 12 places of inheritance. And so, when Moses died and Joshua took over, they are marshalling their, their forces on the east side of the Jordan River, Ready, getting ready to go in and conquer the land. And so Joshua is there giving a pep talk to the nations. All right, Jehovah has brought us here. We're ready. We're going to conquer the land. Do so faithfully. It's going to be a battle, but there's going to be blessings that will flow. And then he stops, and he looks at two and a half tribes that are all over here. And that's what we're going to read, starting in verse 12. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites... And half the tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given, please notice the past tense, given you rest and hath given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan, the east side. But 
ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, valor, and help them, until the Lord hath given your brethren rest, as he hath given you. And they shall have possessed the land which the Lord hath given them. Then shall ye return unto the land of your possession, and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, had given you on this side of the Jordan, unto the sun rising. I want you to picture this now. The 40 years have just ended. In fact, they will end on, on the day that they cross the, the Jordan River very shortly. But he looks at these two and a half tribes and said, All right, guys, you've already conquered your land. Well, now you scratch your head. I, I thought they conquered their land after the 40 years. But that's not true of these two and a half tribes. They conquered their land on the east side of the Jordan at the, at near the end of their, in the, the final couple of years of the 40 years of wandering. They entered into rest before the end of the 40 years. And he says, now, you're not going to rest on your laurels here. You have a responsibility to your brethren. So, arm up. You have to go in there and you've got to help them until they enter into rest and possess the land. Well, brethren, the picture here is quite beautiful. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh represent the little flock, the great company. And let's talk for a moment about half the tribe of Manasseh. Where's the other half? If you look at a map, you see that there's eight and a half tribes on one side and, three and two and a half on the other. Or three and a half on the other. Two and a half on the other. The, the tribe of Manasseh straddles the Jordan River. It's a little bit on this side and a little bit on that side. Now, the suggestion has been made, it's not new to me, unique, I think Brother George has a talk on the subject as well, that the tribes or the land inheritance on the east side represent spiritual inheritance. And that's why we suggest that these tribes represent three classes of individuals that have a spiritual inheritance. The little flock, obviously. The great company, obviously. Ancient worthies, not so obviously. Ancient worthies are kind of a special case. You know, when the ancient worthies are raised... They're raised as perfect human beings, aren't they? They are princes in the earth, and their responsibility is to help the world of mankind at that time. Help Israel at the start, but then through. And that's on the earth. But the suggestion was made, and Brother Russell even mentioned it, that at the end of their earthly sojourn, that they will have an opportunity to come up higher, come up to heaven. And that's a whole other discussion. I like the suggestion very much. I think it's right, and I think it is shown by this type. And that's why you have Manasseh on both sides. They've got one foot in the earthly inheritance and one foot in the, on the heavenly inheritance. So they come up. But brethren, the practical lesson to hear, which we want to close on, is, is pretty beautiful. Remember Joshua. By the way, what's another name for Joshua? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is our general. And when he's giving this pep talk, I think he, he especially talks to these two and a half tribes. He's talking to us. He says, in the millennium, you will have received your reward. And that's true of the great company, the little flock, and the ancient worthies. We receive our reward before the end of the 40 years, before the end of this world, or before the full beginning of the millennial uh, meteorial reign. He says, you have a responsibility. Your brethren need you. You are responsible to help them. And brethren, another twist or way of looking at that is that you are being trained now to help all mankind. No surprise, you do that. That's what we've been called to. 
But here's another picture that shows it. It shows the great responsibility and privilege that we will have to help all mankind up the highway of holiness, to help them enter into God's rest, to help them possess the land and have the blessings on it. That is our privilege to do. I have to skip the wave offering in Leviticus chapter 23. There's uh, two loaves of uh, made. We have the same picture there, the little flock and the great company. Brethren, the doctrine of the great company that we've taken a little bit of time to look at appears to be solidly based on Scripture and reason. We've seen numerous types and shadows that agree beautifully with the doctrine set forth clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The doctrine harmonizes with the divine attributes of God and causes us to praise Him. Let's close with 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Certainly, an elder that stands before you to talk about the great company has to ask himself, why do I want to talk about the great company? I don't want anybody to be in the great company. I want my brethren to reach the fullness of what God has offered. But remember, Brother Russell said, every truth has its place. And since I had an experience where I was challenged on that, and this is how I responded, I wanted to share that with you. But the great company, there is no call to it. There's only a call to the divine nature. And the Apostle Peter, in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, says this, and I want to close this. Wherefore, brethren... Give diligence. What does it mean to give diligence? You do your hardest. Everything you can. Bring every fiber of your being to this goal. And we talked about reaching the goal yesterday. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And then he gives us an encouragement. For if you do these things, what things? The things that he enumerated in the verses before. If you do these things, I love this, ye shall never fall. Brethren, my prayer for you is that we may all be diligent, helping one another to make our calling and election sure. May the Lord bless this to you.